there's a saying, you know, you you are what you eat, but also what you eat and how you eat are clues to who you are and where you came from. All right, guys, growing your wellness business doesn't have to mean working around the clock and feeling exhausted. So welcome to the Healthy Hustle Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Feldman, and I have been in your shoes. I've been in the wellness space for over nine years, and I know what it feels like to feel overwhelmed. I took my wellness business from 13K that first year and feeling fried and exhausted to over six figures. Now I'm a business coach for health and wellness professionals just like you, and I create done-for-you content and programs to help you save time and money so you can spend more time nailing down your niche, understanding your buyer avatar, attracting your ideal client, and building your business from the ground up the right way. So sit down and let's get started. Are you struggling with email marketing for your coaching business? Building an email list is crucial to connect with your clients and increase conversions, but it's not easy. That's where the Cleaning Hacks List Builder and Marketing Kit comes in. You'll get everything you need to build an email list of raving fans and potential clients, including a lead magnet, cover images, opt-in page, thank you page, and follow-up emails. And the best part, it's completely free. And if that isn't enough, I've also created video guides to walk you step-by-step through the setup process. Download your free kit and make it happen. Hey guys, I'm so excited for this amazing episode. Sandra and I, my new friend, Sandra Scheinbaum and I have been talking about the psychology of eating even before we started recording. And I said, Sandra, we better stop and record right away because we were just diving into how eating shows up in our life in so many different ways. And I'm so excited to have you today to talk about the psychology of eating and talk about some of the misconceptions that people have on what they think psychology of eating is. Can you introduce yourself and tell everyone a little about you so my audience can love you too? (laughs) I am happy to. So I started out my career in education, in special education. I taught teachers how to be teachers of children with special needs. Then I became a clinical psychologist and was doing mind-body medicine uh, back in the day, starting in the 70s when it didn't have a name, trained in positive psychology, trained in cognitive behavior therapy. And then I had been uh, a health psychologist for many, many years, did studies of neurofeedback for kids with ADD, specializing in that for a while. And when I was 65 and most people were thinking about retiring, I chose to be a founder of the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. So we're a collaboration with the Institute for Functional Medicine. We train and certify health coaches. And that is my passion because I firmly believe that health coaches will be the new primary care as we are more and more unhealthy metabolically, need that support so badly. And so health coaches on the front lines and then using the physicians, the medical community and what they do best, be the diagnosticians, the medical detectives developing the treatment plan. But first and foremost, it's the health coaches who are helping with diet and lifestyle changes. Oh, I think everyone listening is putting up their hands and clapping (laughs) because I believe that's true. We live in such a sick world these days and we have so much information 
so many amazing doctors, but they don't have the time to do what health coaches do. And I think that mind, body and connection, which health coaches are really near and dear to their heart is the answer to this epidemic that we live in. Absolutely. So can you tell everyone, let's dive into psychology of eating. Right away, we were talking even before we started recording, like some of the misconceptions. Can you kind of share with the audience what we were talking about? Certainly. We tend to think when we say psychology of eating, maybe your mind goes to emotional eating. You know, why do you eat? Because you're angry, you're upset, you're sad, you're happy. Um, And that's a part of it. But it's so much more. There's a saying, you know, you are what you eat. But also what you eat and how you eat are clues to who you are and where you came from and your family of origin. It is like a Rorschach test. And as a psychologist, I gave thousands of Rorschach, you know, those inkblot tests. Uh, But you get more insight into talking with people about food, asking about their eating habits. And we teach this to our health coaches because it's very important that you take into consideration when you sit down to eat, it is more than just you. It is your family, it is your friends, it is your culture, it is the impact of advertising and the big food companies that are influencing your food decisions. Well, how do we step into a place of empowered eating then? If it is all of these different influences, how do we actually form healthy habits around our eating? So it's first understanding where you came from. So right off the bat, uh, when we we label people based on their food habits, so if it starts mm-hmm. in, in infancy, if a, if a baby is colicky, is fussy, well then it's a fussy, it's difficult child. Uh, an easy child would be somebody, or an easy baby would be somebody who's a good eater. You may have heard that expression. Oh, he's a good eater. Uh, but then it's tricky because what if you eat too much? Well, then that is obesity, and you're going to. And what does that mean? And so, if you overconsume, if you are a messy eater, we see these. We see personality. Personality is really linked, and it's expressed through food. Uh, the terrible twos. But no, you know, you're going to refuse to eat, uh, and. And it is even, I'm a grandma of twins and I can see differences in them while they're eating. They're like just turning one and one is just like, everything is like in his mouth, like (laughs) just very fast. And, uh, and then uh, his twin is very meticulous and she picks up everything and examines it very carefully. And that's how they are in other areas of their life as well. So it's, we express ourselves through food. Uh, it can be even sexual expression. There's movie scenes where it's a seduction that happens based from eating. <laughs> and certain foods are you know, known to have those, those powers in terms of associations. It's also our family. You know, we get so many messages about food. And so we learn our habits uh, and also our friends and the, all of the issues that develop when we are with our friends, eating something, we don't really want to eat it, but we're fearing we'll be judged. My daughter does this all the time where she's into the group. She doesn't really want to eat something, uh, but she doesn't want to be judged as the one who's like uh, spoiling the fun, for example. Uh, And there's so much more. There's cultural traditions. Well, and I think when I had to, when I went through a lot of food allergies, I would go to these family events. It would be like Passover and Yom Kippur and all these different holidays. And I would be bringing my own food. And I 
felt judged. And people would say, oh, she's just, she's just a really picky eater. Like nobody even believed that there were food allergies and intolerances. What do you say when somebody comes up against that in their family? How do you kind of deal with those situations? So, yeah, I think the first uh, way to, the best way to deal with it is to forgive. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people get really upset or they won't even go or they start an argument uh, to just realize that it is a lack of understanding and you can let it go. Uh, we tend right. to hold on to things and get upset, um, but the more you can let go and, and sometimes talking about, you mentioned allergies. So it's easier to understand an allergy as opposed to a sensitivity. Yes. And, and then, uh, so it, it also has to do with being less rigid. So if you have a true food allergy, or if you know that for example, being gluten-free, that is first and foremost, or if you're gluten-free, dairy-free, but then, and I've been very guilty of this, you could carry it too far and you might go to an event and you'd say, oh, okay, I can't eat this because it's not grass-fed. You yeah. can't eat chicken. It's not pasture-raised. The fish, oh, it's uh, farm-raised. I can't eat that. And here's gluten and uh, the vegetables aren't organic. And so you end up perhaps not eating at all. And so sometimes it's focusing on, well, how can I eat something and then take care of myself? Like you can have, um, I do something like coconut charcoal afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I can eat the whole thing. I might take a taste right. of lots of different things, um, but realize that that one meal is not going to, the risk of physical harm is not as great as the emotional consequences or the social consequences where it, you're sacrificing a relationship. And that's what I see many people who are become part of a food ideology and become zealots or become with, there's a phrase orthorexia where you are just afraid to eat. And there's a lot of joy in eating. And so the benefits of being with a group of people and enjoying yourself, often may outweigh what are, in other words, you're going to be, that's going to be more beneficial to your physical and mental, emotional health than being in that event and not eating a thing and denying yourself. So it's about finding balance between, you know, things you know you're going to react to that are hard no's and then others where, okay, occasionally I can partake and it is not going to be awful, horrible or terrible. Well, I think if I'm understanding correctly, that person who's extremely rigid, they're probably rigid in other areas of their life. Right, exactly. Yes, that's the key, that your personality is expressed by your food choices and your eating behaviors. And so how would that person who's extremely rigid, because I, I once was there where I was scared to eat anything. Yeah. It was after I found out that I had colitis and I was trying to repair my gut and I just became afraid to eat anything. Then I went off to a detox school and then I was really afraid to eat anything. But bringing back into that balance took me time and it really took working on some core beliefs that I had about myself and finding that ability to not be in control of everything. So if somebody is in that rigid place, what are strategies that they can use to bring them back into balance? So you can, when, let's say you take a bite of food 
And you may know intellectually that this is not the healthiest food choice. Maybe, you know, it was, you know, you're at a restaurant and it was cooked with seed oils or uh, for whatever reason, you know, it's, it's not something that you would choose to eat. But when you take something in, you can eat it in a way that it's mind-body connected. And so if you're eating it slowly, if you are telling yourself, I'm safe, that's the key. And I'm, I'm safe. I'm not going to be irreparably harmed. It's I'd prefer not to eat this, but I'm choosing to eat this at this time. It's not going to be, I'm going to have a steady diet of this food. Yeah. And so the, the difference would be, of course, if you're celiac, if you have, you know, you get um, an allergic reaction or let's say, you know, with alcohol, you've made that decision to not drink. For me, it's no sugar. I have you know, zero desserts. Um, so that is different than having occasionally something that um, you have taught, you're, you've pictured it being assimilated and digested and that it is not harmful, dangerous for you. And so it's a mindset. And I think you even brought that up. It's like, you have to find the joy in going out, the joy in, in eating out and in eating in community with people. And I think when we get into those rigid places, we don't do that. Exactly. So uh, my twin grandkids are having a, they're having a birthday party. And I know that those, there'll be food choices that I will not eat. Uh, and so my daughter's holding the party has you know, said, well, bring some like, okay, I'm going to bring um, a bowl of fruit and I'm going to bring uh, some appetizers that so often contributing something like if it's a buffet, uh, contributing something that you can eat uh, that others may partake in as well. So does psychology of eating also touch upon disordered eating? Is this a great way to understand why we have disordered eating? Yes, absolutely. And there's the, and it is a continuum. Hmm. So, you know, when I was in my twenties, I would binge on sugar. I would literally buy pints of ice cream and devour it. <laughs> and then this is when I was in college and just after college, my first teaching job. And then I would think, okay, I've had it. I'm stopped. And I, I was never a purger. So right. that would be the next step. Um, but I would just eat till I was stuffed, um, sweets typically. And then I didn't know any better. So I would, oh, I've got a party coming up in the, the weekend. So I'll just, I'll, I'll eat better. So what was my way of eating better was a bag of carrots. Um, so yes, disordered eating and often it's messages we had. I grew up in an era when everyone was on a diet. And so it was focusing. We didn't know about resistance training and building muscle. It was just about calories and uh, the right. Uh, and trying whatever diet fad was popular at the time. Uh, and I think we sometimes we're seeing people who are, for example, intermittent fasting and those, especially women who are doing one meal a day, you know, may have had a history of anorexia or anorexia like. Uh, and so that's something that if you're working with a practitioner, a health coach uh, to, to focus on that history, and then perhaps uh, refer out for some therapy, um, really finding, you know, why, why are you choosing this particular eating pattern? 
Uh, is it because it's trendy? I was out to lunch with a group of friends and somebody said to me, she's known me for 35, 40 years. And she said, you know, I've seen you go through every trend, you know, you were macro and I have, I was macrobiotic and I yeah. was vegan, then I was raw vegan and then paleo. And, uh, you know, and now I'm not total carnivore, but red meat, is, you know, my, <laughs> my meal of choice. And she said, you know, I like, why are you doing this? And so I really think of why did I do it? Right. And, uh, it often is because I, uh, I do uh, look at the research and where the research is getting better. And I, but it, it often is like not knowing any better, thinking that this is the way and it's very popular, um, you know, in terms of what you're reading or what you're hearing and in, in media books about it. And so, yeah, you go in my kitchen and you look at my cookbooks. I've got every era, of, <laughs> you know, the, the fat free and, um, uh, you know, every era I, I bought into. I think everyone listening can agree that we've tried everything. I once did a Facebook post where I was like, I'm not dogmatic anymore. I'm not paleo. I'm not raw. I'm not vegan. I'm not primal. I'm not. And I went through everything that I've done and it was a lengthy post. Yes. It got a lot of feedback because I think a lot of people, we do dive into trying to find our identity through the food that we eat. Exactly. And, and it's also, there's a sense of, ours is good, theirs is bad. And I remember doing that. I remember arguments with my husband when I was a vegan. You base your meals around what pro, like what entree. It has to be meat, right. chicken, fish. That, like, why do you do that? And I was so judgmental of how he was eating. And in retrospect, he was right. I was eating, you know, high carb at the time and was not serving me. If I had gone to, you know, I was probably undernourished and, and not enough protein. Uh, but we tend to have that judgmental attitude. And this this goes to foods that are cultural or, or based on our heritage, our country, where we come from. So there's like our, you know, American food is good. If we're traveling in a foreign country, we might have reactions like to something is bad. We're not accustomed. It's strange. And so that is, has played out in the health community as well. Um, very much that, um, judging, you know, how, how somebody eats where we will feel judged and then we will judge others as well. Talk to me how our, where we've come from helps to develop our eating habits. Yeah. So I think it's exploring your culture. Culture is really, really important uh, and even religion. So um, I, uh, there's holidays are so strongly attached um, to right. you mentioned. I mean, there are certain foods that we associate more than than a religious ritual or how, what we do on a holiday, but think of, you know, 4th of July and uh, what you would eat versus Christmas or uh, Rosh Hashanah for Easter. So it's just associated. And, and so it's part and parcel of the holidays. It's so tied in as well as events, sporting events. Uh, I was uh, at a baseball game a few years ago with my husband and he was, he had a bag of peanuts. And why are you eating? Well, it's a baseball game. You know, that's what you eat. It's a baseball game. Um, and so, so I think it's having an understanding of that, like where, where you came from. And that often ties in uh, to peer pressure, to right. have to eat a certain way, have to follow the traditions. So the best is 
is really celebrating those traditions uh, and finding ways that you can, you know, I've made um, gluten-free honey cake for Rosh Hashanah, yeah. <laughs> uh, for example, and that's um, to have, to still uh, maintain what I'm doing for health reasons, but also uh, to have to, a way to celebrate a holiday with everybody else and feel like I'm even if I'm by myself celebrating the holiday, feel like this is how I'm staying connected to my community. So I think it's having that understanding and really giving up the rigidity and having a sense of, of humility that you're not going to be right. Because I can just look back like the most recently was with almond. Um, I had some, you know, food sensitivity testing and I came back to be really sky high reacting to almonds. And my older daughter had the same reaction. Why? Because we were doing everything with almond flour and almond milk. And it was an overabundance of almonds. So having, I think those people in our community who are advocating for diversity to eat a whole variety, to not stay uh, just tied to one type of food or one brand, um, but to keep switching things out. Um, so I was doing every, you know, baking um, everything with almond flour. Of course, that was detrimental. Now you're so, baking with coconut flour. Now I'm making with, yeah. <laughs> now, actually, my latest is Himalayan <laughs> tartary buck. <laughs> Dr. Oh, <Jeff> wow. <laughs> I adopt recipes for that. Um, but having the ability with, and that's humility to realize that you don't know everything that, uh, to have a sense of wonder about, um, what will, what we'll find out next in terms of foods. But I think having, losing the rigidity, having diversity in what you eat, diversity in terms of, yeah, it might be fun to explore a new restaurant occasionally instead of having that hard line uh, and, and particularly, I think this becomes problematic when we're raising children. I was just, you read my mind. I was like, I want to get into raising. I love that you brought up about the twins because here you have two children in the same household. Yes. Who are brought up with the same foods and they yeah. have completely different habits. Yeah. Can you talk about raising healthy children and their food habits. Yes. So don't do what I did. <laughs> when I was raising my daughters and that is I had um, and and there were things I did right like I um, when my daughter was my older daughter was two I were not going to have McDonald's anymore or go out for like these processed hot dogs so I brought in better food that was organic but where I made a mistake was because at the time it was a fat free was at its height um, it was in wow. the, the 80s and also that I chose to raise them as vegans. It was the worst thing. I mean, I look back and if I could have did, could have done a lot of things differently, but that would have been one that what was I thinking? Um, and yet there was support from the community that this was good. Um, and so the and I remember uh, one incident really stands out and I've talked about this a lot. We were going to a Thanksgiving dinner. It was at my former sister, my sister-in-law, who's since passed away. And she was serving turkey and uh, stuffing. And I brought a tofurkey for me and the daughters. It was like disgusting tasting, but okay, no turkey. Would have been so much healthier if we'd had the turkey than this over-processed, made in a lab, uh, you know, <laughs> plant, uh, tofurkey. 
and we were having the stuffing. Okay. Cause that was all right. It was, um, uh, I, those were the days we weren't originally, it wasn't about gluten back then. It was more about fat. And so she happened, uh, it was a really tasty stuffing. And she said, oh yeah, I made my mom's recipe. You know, I use schmaltz. Schmaltz, uh, for those listeners who don't know, is chicken fat, rendered chicken fat. Okay. I like, you should have seen my facial expression. Like <laughs> I basically told my daughter, like, don't eat it. Like, this is awful. Like, <laughs> I don't think I got up and left, but it was like that kind of like, Oh we were so rigid and we were so into the fat free that fat is going to kill you. And I'm thinking, oh, the worst kind of fat, this chicken, this chicken fat. Um, and so if I could go back in time and redo that, um, that was a big mistake. It's the rigidity. It's forcing kids to be different. Um, to they talk about now and now that they're adults, like what it was like at the lunch table, like kids would make fun of them when they would bring the the tofu and the you know all the stuff right. that was foreign to, to the other kids. Um, and so and of course when they went off to college or you know they um, completely ate differently. My older daughter was still very um, observant of health principles. And to this day, she's a, um, has trained as a health coach and, um, she co-hosts our podcast. And so she's very much into this, but, uh, remember she, she took a picture, she was on a date and they went to a steakhouse, her first taste of meat, <laughs> like, you know, since she was two and had eaten that McDonald's hamburger. So, um, and then my younger daughter just completely rebelled, had no part of eating healthy. And, and so one of the things that happens, and I think parents don't realize, is that the developmental stages of childhood, particularly when they're reaching adolescence, and it's that identity versus role confusion, and they're establishing their identity. Yeah. It's played out in food. It's played out where they will be um, rebelling whatever, if you raise them vegetarian, they're going to be carnivore. If they're, uh, if you um, had a standard American diet, they're going to, or believed in um, eating animal foods, you're, they're going to come back and saying I'm vegan after Thanksgiving from college. So I love, I, I love that. I have my own, of course, stories. I have my son who is like the one who is rigid in his healthy eating. And then I have my daughter who is like, mom, don't even tell me what to eat. Don't yes. even come to me. <laughs> so, and you know, it's interesting. I grew up and I remember this family who was down the street and the mother was extremely rigid in her house. And I'll never forget being at a birthday party and the husband and the two children were hiding eating cake. One child was underneath the table eating cake. The husband was like in another room eating cake. And they were just like, they would come over to our house and it would be, it would be like heaven for them because they had all these different choices at our house. But I'll tell you, my first diet was when I was 11 years old. So there must've been messages that were coming and I felt that I needed to be on a diet and I did have disordered eating. I did. Um, it was a long battle that I had and I'm so grateful that it doesn't exist in my life anymore, but it's something that I always look at. Where did that come down in generational passing? to actually have those kind of disordered eating. Yeah. And that was the, the diet culture. And so, um, yeah, it goes to use a long haul. It sounds like to, um, to recover 
and to feel now that um, you are in control of, of your eating patterns. Well, and to be able to eat without thinking about it. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like when you go to be disordered eating and then you're so rigid to be able to fall into a place where you can say, I can eat this without worry. I think that's the beauty of it. But I always had those questions like, where does this come from? And I think in this talk that we've been uncovering today, it's like so much of those messages that are coming down must have been like, I felt that I needed to be perfect and needed to be this certain way. Yeah, it's the interaction of the messages and your personality and your response to the messages. So the messages could be food is to be afraid of. Uh, we have to really judge what we eat. We have to be aware of everything. Food is danger. And when we're little, we don't have the cognitive processing ability to sort out those thoughts and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. I'm not going to buy into this. This fits, but not that. So in other words, we swallow it whole. We don't assimilate and digest and spit out what doesn't fit for us. And so it's your personality. My older daughter is a lot like me, Was has more issues that she talked about. And she was also a performer. She was a dancer. So that culture ties in as well. You have to be super... Yeah thin and fit. And so, uh, and she's a people pleaser like me and a perfectionist. And so she bought into that. Whereas another child would, would be more rebellious in their personality or more assertive and say like, yeah, you know, I, I'm not going to buy into that. I'm going to do what I want. And that is more of the rebellious child uh, who might do that. And that's in their personality and their doing, uh, and that, that can have its issues as well, because they may uh, be eating in a way that is unhealthy for them. How does stress impact our plate that we have? Oh, so much. It is. When we are stressed, um, and that is the emotional component, it could be mindless eating, where we are stressed, and so we like the taste of food. Yeah. Uh, it is, it, it's satisfying. And so we tend to overeat. We also eat without awareness. And we're also, we may be doing double duty where we're answering emails or we're reading or watching TV and we're eating. We're not really aware. There's a Brian Wansink uh, who, um, who's at Cornell. I don't know if he still is there, but he's written some books about uh, the, the social issue or the issues of the surroundings that you eat, uh, how you... Um, Studies where, like, uh, let's say um, they're, you're eating uh, chicken wings and they have bowls to put the, the bones, okay? You'll eat less if um, you, they keep take, take, if they have it there so you could see. But if the server keeps taking it away oh and you God. don't know, uh, then you're going to eat more. So there's a lot of social cues that uh, how food is described on menus. There, there's a whole psychology behind that as well. And certainly the whole advertising and how we are influenced. So let's say we're stressed. We've heard an ad about some food or we're, you know, we see something that's, that's ultra processed and it's tantalizing. So they're spending billions on the kind of research that's going to get us to like this magical combination of salt, sugar, fat, and that's what's going to, so that's addictive. And now we're stressed and that is more uh, putting more pressure on us to, to eat this. 
What are some of the ways, if you are a people pleaser, I love that you brought that up. If you are a people pleaser, what are some of the ways that you can stand up for yourself when it comes to the food that you're eating? Sure. So I think it is uh, looking at uh, who are you pleasing and how is this serving you versus somebody else? So if you're at a family gathering and around the holidays, that's usually big. Oh, my mom is making my special yes. uh, things. I used to make her special cake that, that I love. Absolutely. <laughs> what am I going to do? So it depends where you are in life. It depends. So, you know, I wear a continuous glucose monitor and I can know that. And at my age, I'm 73. I know that I can't afford to eat that dessert because, yeah, I could do it when I was 23 or even 43. But at my age, as we tend to become more insulin resistant, uh, more metabolically challenged, I'm trying, unfortunately, not there, but I'm trying <laughs> to stay there. So I know for me, it's going to be a hard no. And so even if it would ruin a relationship, and uh, with me, it would be, you know, with my friends, but they know me, they know how I eat. They've they been love you and accept you for who you are. <laughs> um, they know that I might bring my own food or, you know, have my own bottle of, you know, um, <laughs> special drink with me. So, um, but looking at whose needs are being met, that's what you're constantly asking, whether it is a friend, a relative, whether it's with your child, your adult child, your grandkids, who's needs are being met. And sometimes you would say, well, it's, it's their needs. You know, when you're raising kids and being so dogmatic about, you're not meeting their needs by being so rigid. Whereas if it's at a social occasion or family gathering and you're afraid somebody will not like you. And so it goes back again, that what's your history? Is that your pattern? You say to yourself, I'm not going to, I'm going to choose not to express this through food. How is this helping or hurting me? And it varies. Sometimes you're going to say, yes, I'm going to taste that because it's delicious. And I'm at a party and um, my body will assimilate it and it's not going to irreparably damage my health. And other times, you know, you have health issues that are significant that you're dealing with uh, that you're going to say, no, I, you know, this is not worth it. I love and that. I love that you brought in those because I think, especially as health advocates, when we are going through health challenges, we do have to say no to some things and really being able to come up with the right verbiage and stand up for ourselves without people pleasing is extremely important. Yeah. And you don't have to give an answer. You can just say, no, thank you. You know, I love yeah. oh, it's delicious. Um, you know, I'll, I'll pass this time. So they, and I they love can... that you suggested to bring to bring something. So it's like bring a dessert, bring an appetizer, bring something, or even bring your own food. There were many holidays that I had to do that because I knew that there, this was when gluten-free was not trendy. Right. Yeah. And, you know, dairy was everywhere. It's like, now I think it's easier. I think that people have an easier time because people are more aware Definitely. of allergies and sensitivities. Definitely. What would you say I'm missing? Did I not cover anything? Would you say that there's any topic that we need to cover? I think this was comprehensive. I think we talked about the influence of your personality uh, from an early age, from infancy. Yeah. You can see it, how, ki how people get labeled because of their food preferences and habits. You know, the picky eater is the difficult child, for example. Uh, and then how we go through stages where school-age kids are really compliant. You know, they're taking cooking classes and baking with you. And then in adolescence, they're rebelling. 
And then things may change when they're setting up their own household. And what we didn't really talk about is the psychology of eating the phase of life, older adults who may be losing their appetite, they're not interested in food, and they are under uh, uh, undernourished, they're not eating enough protein. And so it's, and they're still stuck in the psychology, they haven't moved forward. And that's a rigidity as well. Like they learned about food in the 60s and 70s, that culture- right. And they haven't moved on to uh, new awarenesses. So that can be frustrating for children who are becoming caretakers of their older parents. Um, so that's another area. I do have to say my husband's grandma is 101. Uh-huh. And she still eats hot dogs and baked beans and all that thing. And I was just saying to my mother-in-law the other day, she did not grow up with toxic food. And that, yeah. that looking at her eating habits, which I would say, oh my goodness, grandma should be eating this way. But we don't even mess with what grandma's eating because whatever grandma's doing, it clearly is working. But we didn't talk about kind of the toxins that are bombarding us today. Yeah. And so, I mean, it is definitely problematic um, and can lead to um, being paralyzed. I know when I in a restaurant, sometimes looking at a menu, like I can see an issue with every different yeah. thing on the menu and unless it is a so-called health food restaurant. Um, right. But uh, it is it is definitely challenging. And I think, again, that's where balance comes in, that uh, sometimes you go with the flow uh, the the evening or the event, um, or what your family is bringing you. And uh, sometimes you make a stance, especially if you have health issues. Um, but I think the biggest problem with rigidity comes in with children. Um, yeah. A friend of mine, who's also a grandma, she gave her um, her little son a raisin, one raisin. And uh, her daughter-in-law came in and she grabbed it from the little boy's hand, like, no, we don't eat that. It has sugar in it. <laughs> Oh, (laughs) I know. I, like I said, I can identify with these days. I know when I was so nervous, like it's so nervous to cook with anything. So nervous that it's like, I feel just like you said, I wish I could go back and do it different. Yes. We do our best. Exactly. Tell everyone where to find you so they can follow you and love you as much as I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, our website is functionalmedicinecoaching.org. Personally, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Sandy. Uh, Our school is Functional Med Coach. And this, if this area intrigues you, um, you can become a health coach as well and to help people through these kinds of issues and help them find balance and joy in eating which we all need to do because it's not like you can say no to eating. (laughs) Absolutely, (laughs) Guys, this has been an amazing episode. Please follow this woman. And if you have any interest in her school, please go and check it out. Sounds like an amazing school. And just like you can see, she is an advocate for health coaches. And I know that it's something that you want in this world. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate our talk today. All right, guys, stay tuned for the next episode. Bye, guys. All right, guys, that is all for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any future episodes. While you're there, it would mean the world to me if you take just a few seconds and leave me an honest review. Truth is, I love honesty. Your views help me to reach even more health coaches 
and wellness professionals who are ready to explode their business and want the truth in this non-BS approach. You can find all the links and the information mentioned in this episode at www.rachelafeldman.com backslash podcast. All right, so don't forget to tag me on Instagram at Rachel A. Feldman and let me know what was your favorite part of the episode. This will help me to create even better content for you, bring on awesome peeps to tell you the truth about how they built their business, plus other speakers to help you take your business to the top without overwhelm. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys soon.